0: To the sci-fi sisters book club author series event with Derek Tyler Attico. Woohoo! Hey, Everybody
1: hey, say hello. Hey. Hey.
0: We're so excited to have Derek with us. He's an award-winning author. He's a photographer. He's an essayist. He's a playwright. He's an amazing human being, and we love him to pieces, and he's our brother, and he's going to present a story that he wrote today, um, and he's going to share it with us, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit, and we're so excited to have Derek.
2: Welcome, Derek. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much, you guys. Um, this is an honor to be with the Sci-Fi Sisters and to be reading, uh, this uh Star Trek Deep Space Nine story is an honor for you guys. Um, so to tell you a little bit about this, this story was written, uh, for the Star Trek Strange New Worlds short story contest in 2016 for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Um, I wrote it. I submitted it. I hoped it would get in. um, And I was lucky enough and honored enough that it did. And this is a um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine story. It's a Benny Russell uh, story. And it's a story that I wanted to write. I really didn't think about a lot about what other people would think or what they would feel. It was something that was uh, weighing on me. And I was like, oh, you know what? I just want to write a story that I think is going to be a really good star trek story and a really good benny russell story and i'm gonna write it and if it doesn't get in it doesn't get in if it gets in it gets in and it well, I was very lucky is, right on it got in and so that is um what i'll be reading today uh in its entirety uh for everyone and um i hope everyone uh enjoys it thanks derek
0: okay you guys ready ready all right let's do it
2: all right star trek deep space nine The Dreamer and the Dream, by Derek Tyler Attica. The Orb of Vengeance. Three days ago, the thought of the Power Raves having an orb of their own would have been sacrilege, but that was before the cult of the Power Raves found the orb in the Gamma Quadrant, before they bombed the Bajoran Temple in Deep Space Nine, and before they kidnapped Cassidy Yates Sisko and her son, Jonathan. Now, Watching from the shadows as the cult members performed their unholy ritual on this dead asteroid in the Badlands, Captain Kira Norris felt like the universe had simply gone mad. She whispered. Lieutenant Commander Nog didn't need to use his lobes to hear the stress in his commanding officer's voice. The Ferengi shifted uncomfortably in a defiance command chair, regretting that he was about to add to it. The weapons platforms haven't detected us, but the plasma storms are intensifying. The Defiant isn't going to be able to stay cloaked much longer, Captain. Kira's voice sounded rushed, almost desperate over the comms. I need good news, Chief. It had been more than five years, but Miles O'Brien worked the Defiant's console like he hadn't missed a day. In the chamber adjacent to you, I'm reading nine Bajorans, three Cardassians, and two humans. One child, one adult female but I can't get a lock on them. There's some kind of force field around them preventing transport. How the bloody hell had this happened? O'Brien had been happy to get away from teaching, see old friends, and consult on the defiant refit. Now, they were all racing to prevent the murder of both Jonathan, Sisko, and his mother. O'Brien frowned. It gets worse, Captain. I can't shut the platform down. These aren't like the ones we saw during the Dominion War. Finding impractical solutions to impossible problems was what O'Brien did. What he thought, what he taught at Starfleet Academy. Now, it seemed like everything just led to another dead end. The view screen showed three Cardassian weapons platforms orbiting the asteroid it had taken them so long to find. The claw-shaped monstrosities looked like a trio of gargles, gargoyles waiting amidst the plasma storm's angry swirls of orange and red ready to unleash death and destruction. I've never seen anything like this. As O'Brien read the telemetry from the platforms guarding the asteroid, he realized that he didn't have a solution for the impossible problem. They're receiving energy directly from the plasma storms. Garrick looked up from the communications console with disgust. He didn't mind detaining and torturing two high-ranking Cardassians to learn that the Pyrae's cult has supporters on Cardassia. But to find out about the kidnapping after it was underway was unworthy of the obsidian order he was rebuilding. I'm afraid it's worse than that, Captain. It appears I have even less influence now than I did as a tailor. My access codes have been rejected. In 90 seconds, the platformers will initiate a tachyon sweep. These people have helped his world. And this wasn't the time to fail them, Garrick thought. Esri Dax felt like she'd aged more in the last three days than she had in eight lifetimes. In the last 72 hours, she'd been treated for third-degree burns, held the hands of dying friends, and promised Jake Sisko she'd get his stepmother and brother back. Now that promise felt as worthless as the codes Garrick had guaranteed. Attacking on sweep will fry the cloak. When that happens, understood. Stand by, Defiant, Kira said. The Trill's despair on a Defiant seemed to have reached the rescue team on the asteroid below. Kira looked over at Bashir and Odo, their faces cast in shadow, a shadow that seemed to have enveloped hope itself. In one swift motion, the former freedom fighter pulled the phaser from a hip holster. We have to do this now. Kira pointed the weapon towards the group, in the next cavern. From this distance, she could just make out an orb arc being held by one of the figures. If she could destroy the arc and the orb contained inside, she was sure all of this would come to an end. Dr. Julian Bashir kept his voice low and his eyes fixed on the muted tricorder. There's some kind of medical isolation field around them. I can't locate the power source. The doctor looked directly into Kira's eyes, making sure she understood the message. Phase of fire could overload the field and kill Cassidy and Jonathan. Kira considered Bashir's words. Even with her skill, at this distance, she couldn't be sure she wouldn't hit the field. But within the next minute, the defiant would be in serious trouble. She couldn't block out the thoughts of Benjamin Sisko the former captain, her friend, the emissary. This was his wife and child. He'd been gone for five years, and it was Kira's job to protect them, save them, but taking the shot could kill them. Kira realized she didn't need skill. She needed faith. Slowly, agonizingly, the woman who had fought against evil all her life lowered the weapon. It hurt Odo to see the desperation and fear in Kira's eyes. When he learned the Parrafe's orb of vengeance was in the Gamma Quadrant, he had used all the resources of the Dominion to locate it. When it was finally tracked to the Badlands, he knew he had to come back to help his friends, to help Kira. He desperately wanted to tell her that everything would be all right, that he still loved her so much, but instead he just turned to Dr. Bashir. Otto shifted his jaw slightly before he spoke. The former constable had been in a liquid state for so long that being a humanoid for the past few days felt strange. Doctor, are you saying that after everything we've been through to get here undetected, we have to let them carry out their plans? Whatever they're planning, they're going to have to do it when they drop the field. Bashir realized how empty the words sounded. He had lost 32 people when the bomb exploded on the promenade. Constable McCray's blood was still in his uniform. After 78 hours without sleep, he could do without the changeling's signature pessimism. Once that happens, we can beam them up in seconds. Kira glanced at the semicircle of figures around Cassidy and Jonathan. Even now, she believed the prophets watched over the emissary in the celestial temple. She prayed their benevolence extended to his family. The spotlight in Cassie Cisco's face seemed more like a veil of, of light, its glare strotting the figures that surrounded her. One of them stepped forward, the form reaching the wall of light to reveal a young man. His crinkled nose and robes indicated that he was Bajoran, a people of peace and religion, but the hatred in his eyes belied his smile. Slowly, he reached toward Cassidy's ear. The isolation field shimmered in contradiction as it allowed his hand to pierce the confines, but prevented her from moving. Your paw is strong, he whispered. Cassidy stared defiantly into his eyes, hoping to match the evil there with strength. Why are you doing this? The acolyte withdrew his hand and crouched down, studying the little boy that slept drugged at his mother's feet. The family of the emissary deserves to feel the love of the paw race. As he rose, he pulled the crimson robes in around him, as if doing so gave him comfort. Cassidy closed her eyes and focused not on the monster standing over her son, but on Jonathan's father, the only person she ever truly loved. Ben, our son needs you. Please, Ben. He'd spoken to her once before from the wormhole. Now she desperately needed to reach him. The acolyte circled the isolation field. The emissary has forsaken you. Leisurely, he allowed his robes to drag across the circular pattern of runes etched in the, into the floor. He removed a knife from his robes and sliced his hand open. He doesn't love you. The blood burned as it fell upon the runes. Slowly, almost teasingly, flames crept up to consume the acolyte's robes. He ignored them. They burned away his robes while leaving him unscathed. The disciples smiled. He communes with false gods. Finally, he stood in front of his prey, covered only in hundreds of ancient Bajoran runes that had been tattooed onto his skin. The young agent of evil outstretched his hands as if receiving an anointment from some some unseen force. And the runes began to glow. For the first time in her life, Cassidy Yates Sisko truly knew fear. The acolyte smiled as he watched the turmoil play across her face. Don't worry, he said. From beyond the light, a woman holding the orb arc came into view. It won't be long now. The defiance shuddered as the illusion of light and energy surrounding it dissipated into non-existence. Cloak is down. The platforms are firing. A spread of, torpedo, of torpedoes reiterated Esri's words. O'Brien kept the, tram, kept the transporters on standby and pulled power from the warp engines to feed the structural integrity field. Nog hadn't given the order to raise the shields. There were five reasons on the asteroid below why he wouldn't. The groans from the ablative armor and resulting microfactors told the chief what he already knew. If the away team didn't do what they needed to soon, there wasn't going to be a ship to beam them up to. The acolyte chanted as the runes lifted off of his body and encircled the group in a maelstrom of malevolence. Coast emojin, we who believe offer the lives of your enemy to you. Come forth and light our way with your love. Kira watched the room swirl around the isolation field in rhythm to the invocation. She could feel evil seething in the shadows. The risks no longer mattered. She reached for her phaser, but nothing happened. Odo and Bashir were motionless as well. They all came to the same realization. They couldn't move. The acolyte smiled as he turned to look at Kira. You're too late. Abruptly, The orb arc opened of his own violation, and dark energy ripped out of the obsidian hourglass and into Jonathan Sisko. Flames erupted from the boy's eyes and mouth and engulfed the acolyte, the cult of the power race, Odo, Bashir, and finally Cassidy and Yates Sisko, just as she realized in horror what her son had become. As a figure emerged unscathed from the flames, the world around Karen and Reese took on a familiar hue of blue, but not before a single word escaped her lips. "Ducat, March 3rd, 1959. Dr. Naya Manning smiled as she looked up from the handwritten pages of Deep Space Nine epilogue. You've written your Star Trek stories for a long time, Benny. Your refusal to stop is what keeps you committed. Her patient had come a long way from the shell condemned to solitary confinement for assaulting Dr. Wyckoff. But this is the first time you've gone back to a Deep Space Nine story in five years. Why now? Benny Russell thought about the question. He remembered Roy Ritterhouse giving him the drawing of a space station in the Incredible Tales office. When he sat down in his typewriter in front of a blank page, that simple sketch dared him to reach for more than he ever thought possible. Now, whenever he looked at a blank page, he didn't see its clean white background and crisp blue lines or darkness, the darkness that devoured his life because he chose his stories over love, the darkness his people endured for being born brown in a white world and the darkness of space. He no longer saw the points of light that filled so many of his stories with wonder, but the empty spaces between them. Now he wanted to fill those spaces with his anger, his hatred, and his depression. He wanted to be free, free of this place, free of his sadness, and free of his stories. T Space Nine is where this started, he said. It's where it should end. Dr. Manning made some notes. In her pad before continuing. She leaned forward, changing to the warm tone of a confidant and friend. Let's talk about what brought this change on. Russell looked at the doctor who had become his savior and friend. He had no doubts who she was talking about, but he found it hard to look at Dr. Manning when he spoke again. When Cassie told me she was marrying Willie Hawkins, I felt betrayed, abandoned. He remembered something he'd written a long time ago and hit a frown. The reality is that she's moved on and I've existed by escaping into my stories, telling myself nothing else mattered, but it's not enough to just exist. It's not linear. A long moment passed as Russell reflected on his own words. Manning finally broke the silence. She returned the handwritten pages. You've done something few writers ever accomplished, Benny. The exploits of Sisko, Kirk, Picard, Janeway, and Archer are all compelling, thought-provoking stories in a vast universe. She calmly crossed her legs before speaking again. But you're right. It's not linear. It's an obsession. You've been writing about the future for six years while spending your life here. It had taken so long to get him here, but she knew the answer didn't lie in painting over his words or in preventing him to write. Those years are gone, Benny. Cassie's gone. It's time that you put all your pain and suffering into this last story and Star Trek and take your life back. She smiled at him from behind glasses that concealed the warmth of her hazel eyes. It wasn't the first time Russell wondered if there was more meaning in those eyes than she dare say, as she helped him find a way out of the darkness. The Defiant listed to his side like a wounded beast. Explosions ripped apart the bridge. Kira's order was full of pain and grief. Chief, get us out of here. O'Brien turned, whiffs of smoke rising off the charred flesh of his face. Her paw is strong. She will serve as well. The captain looked around the bridge. Defiance crew was all burned badly, yet smiling at her. Prophets? It didn't feel like an orb experience. This felt real. Hello, Nerisse. The voice thundered, yet it was soft, like a caress. It disgusted her. Turning toward the command chair, the image of Odo being engulfed in flames tormented her. Before she even realized it, her phaser was pointed at the cot. The Cardassian seemed amused. "Come now, Nereese. You know such stories are meaningless here. Kira gripped her phaser as if it was the last remnant of her sanity, the only way for her to hold back the tears. What is this? This? Ducat rose from the center seat, tendrils of flame emanating from his eyes. This is the final chapter. This is an inevitability. And I have been chosen as it's... Ducat paused, smiling as he stood a lover's distance from Kara. Emissary. The woman that has spent a lifetime resisting stood her ground, refusing to show weakness before this devil. Who had already taken so much from her and Bejor. The prophets will stop you. The flames from his eyes seemed to intensify as he stood there watching her, casting an unnatural illumination upon the ridges that adorned his face and neck, their heat emanating utter evil. Ducat laughed as he walked towards the false defiance view screen. The bridge crew, par Race, stood aside with a reverence that shocked Kira. The plasma storms filled the electronic display and at its center, Deep Space Nine sat untouched. The former gull smiled while watching the plasma storms surrounding Deep Space Nine on the display. Narice, what are the three keys to enlightenment? You can't possibly know. The nauseated Kira to hear Bajoran scripture come from this butcher of millions. He knew nothing of charity, humility, and faith. Dukat stared transfixed by the streams of plasma as they danced wildly around the lone space station. On the contrary, my communion with the power raves has enlightened me. He raised his hand in front of the viewer, gesturing as if he were following a concerto. As he did so, the strands of energy followed his tempo. Suddenly, Dukat closed his hand into a fist and plasma streams tore into Deep Space Nine, shattering the space station as if it were a fragile toy. The once prefect of Bajor smiled. It's a vision that I'm going to share with the universe. Suddenly, Dukat was behind her, whispering into her ear. However, the fate of Bajor is in your hands, as it was always meant to be. Captain. Nog resisted the urge to wave his hand in front of his superior officer's face. Dax decided to use the tricorder instead. Kira, can you hear us? Startled by the close proximity of the tricorder, Kira stepped back. She surveyed her surroundings and realized that she was under real defiance. Report. O'Brien, without looking away from the busy engineering station, said, a blade of armor is gone. Life support on decks three and four has failed. Energy force fields are holding. Finally, the chief turned around to make sure his point was made. She's holding together, but not by much, sir. Having lobes like his, Nog had learned to listen to everything around, to listen to everyone, said, wait a minute, having lobes like this, Nog had learned to listen to everything everyone said, especially when they were quiet. Sir, our scans showed some kind of massive explosion. And then the platform started firing as soon as we beamed through a board. What happened down here? As we could feel Judzia's bravado pushing to the surface as she feigned a smile, it seemed like the prophets were charitable today. Garrick stood to the side, watching everyone. That remains to be seen, he said. Much like a Cardassian trial, he feared he'd known the outcome of this endeavor from the moment Captain Kira had had contacted him two days ago. The fact that any of the way team had made it back from the asteroid's death trap was sheer luck. Or something more sinister. Might I inquire as to the status of the constable, the doctor, and the Ciscos? sat in a command chair, pushing away the images of the all consuming flames that threatened to turn her heart into ashes. She could feel Dukat's whispers preying upon her soul. We've got to get back to DS9. March 4th, 1959. Dr. Wyckoff handed the report back to his colleague, not bothering to conceal the skepticism in his voice. I don't believe it. Dr Manning smiled as she walked down the hallway beside the Queensborough beside the Queensborough Mental Institution's new chief of staff His premature gray revealed what he'd gone through for his position Nevertheless Benny is completing his last Cisco story Dr Wyckoff stopped just short of entering the recreation room It was a common tactic among the staff to allow them to see without being seen. Searching the occupied room, he spotted a lone figure sitting by the window, writing in the mid-morning sun. He still has very little voluntary interaction with anyone. It concerns me he's become so introverted since he's been here. It's not a psychosis. It's a choice, Dr. Manning watched Russell as he wrote. Even in the confines of this place, it was clear to her the former author was in his element. She wondered what stories he would have written if he were at home or with his friends at the Incredible Tales magazine. Besides, with his history, I can't say I blame him. Wyckoff stopped watching Russell and turned to Dr. Manning. After the solitary confinement, He had wanted to ship Russell off to prison for assaulting him, but it was Dr. Manning that came in and convinced him that the path to Benny Russell's sanity wasn't to cast him out, but to see this through. For some time, he suspected that there must be some sort of impropriety going on between doctor and patient. But if there was, he and his staff had been unable to discover it. You're very protective of him. Aren't you, Dr. Manning? Manning thought about the implication of the question and decided the only way to answer it was honestly. I've been treating Benny almost since I arrived here. I've come to understand him. With what he's been through, the scope of his stories, he's very special. Wyckoff realized his colleague answered the duplicitous question and yet didn't. He couldn't blame her. Regardless of that, he come to see what she said was true. Putting him in prison certainly wouldn't have cured Russell of his inability to live life, instead of obsessing and writing stories, no matter how positive they may be. Now, they were on the cusp of making this man whole again. I can't argue that. All right, all right, doctor, your request is approved. Benjamin Sisko stumbled as he moved through the debris. The ship was unsteady, dying. There wasn't much time. He had to find them again. Just beyond the transparent aluminum port, he watched the wormhole spiral open in a cascade of color and light. A moment later, flames erupted from the wormhole, enveloping space as far as he could see. What the hell was going on? It didn't matter. He had to find them. Jennifer? He called out, desperate. He could barely hear himself over the red alert klaxon and the ship's internal explosions. Please, God, please let them be here. There was so much smoke, but in the shadows, his eyes caught the shape of a form that could only be one thing. Jake! Morning. damage to warp core. The computer taunted him, reminding him that inevitability was approaching. Containment failure in three minutes. Cisco removed the debris. The boy wasn't Jake, but this was his son. Somehow he knew it. He knew the boy's name. Jonathan? What was happening? What were the prophets trying to tell him? It, it didn't matter. There wasn't much time. I'm going to get your mom. You're going to be okay. Panic of the past gripped Sisko as he reached for the girder, pinning the woman to the floor. Jennifer, please, not again. Not Jennifer, not his wife. Cassidy, entombed in a mangled duranium. Okay, Jonathan, we'll get your mom out and we'll get out of here. The father and husband Wrapped his hands around the girder and pulled with all his love, just as before. Why were the prophets doing this? Where was Sarah? A familiar voice called out to him from the darkness Benjamin. Was it the prophets? Was this real? Had the Borg attacked again and the prophets sent him to save his family? Help me, he screamed. The figure walked around the debris and crouched down beside Cassidy. She's dead, Benjamin. I burned her in the love of the power of race, and Jonathan belongs to me now. There's nothing you can do. Sisko fell back, recognizing the man with whom he had descended into hell. Stunned, he looked around the destroyed room. What is this? What are you doing here? The Cardassian smiled as he read the concern on the human's face. Don't you recognize your celestial temple? I assure you, Captain, the prophets will not come to your aid this time. It's just the two of us, as it was always meant to be. The ship rocked as the past continued to play out. Determination overrode fear as Benjamin Sisko turned his attention to Dukat, refusing to allow the image of Cassidy's body to overwhelm him. I don't know how you got out. Sisko stepped up to Dukat, unwavering, as he got into the Cardassian's face but you're going back. The remark was audacious. It angered Dukat. Even now that he attained godhood, Sisko still felt like his equal. He was going to have to change that. The Cisco is aggressive, adversarial. Is that any way to treat me, father? Somehow, Sisko knew it was true. As he reached for Dukat, Knowing he had to find a way to undo what Dukat had done to his family, to the prophets, to the universe, instead he found himself standing back at the burned door to his quarters with Dukat next to him. The Cisco is corporeal, linear. He doesn't understand what he is. Dukat chuckled. The Cisco has come to the beginning of his end. There will be no more tasks. For a moment, Dukat's appearance faded to reveal the visage of a young man in agony. He was the same height as Benjamin, and as soon as Cisco looked into the eyes, into his eyes, he knew who it was. Jonathan. Almost immediately, the shell of Dukat resurfaced and the Cardassians smiled. For so long the Pa rapes wanted to reclaim their place in the celestial temple until I convinced them how fitting it would be to leave the false gods and you here, suffering and in prison for all eternity while we set the universe aflame. Goodbye, emissary. Benjamin Sisko screamed as the past began to replay and he watched himself once again stumble through the debris looking for his wife and son. It had taken him years to let go of this place, but now, and perhaps for all eternity, this was where Benjamin Sisko would exist. March 24th, 1959. Russell leaned hard on the cane that supported him, but it gave him no comfort. I wanna thank you again for this, Dr. Manning. The trees and cast iron fences around the Queensboro Mental Institution weren't much to look at, but it didn't matter. He was outside for the first time in years. Across the street, cars moved up and down the avenue. People walked by, and in the distance, he could hear a dog barking. The air was sharp and crisp. It was spring, and New York was coming alive. Benny Russell felt the same way. I owe you so much. Dr. Manning tilted her head away from him, but he glimpsed a smile. Manning stopped in front of an oak. Its new leaves were beginning to blossom. I'm pleased Dr. Wyckoff approved this. I know you've endured a lot. She thought about the beatings Russell suffered for being outspoken and black. The cane that was a constant reminder of his injuries. It was no wonder he had a breakdown, no surprise that he had retreated into his stories. To make matters worse, the isolation he endured here was a mistake. The savages here had always given Benny Russell the stick and never considered the carrot. But all that's over now. The doctor put a reassuring hand on Russell's arm. From now on, you'll be able to take walks outside every week. Manning looked up into his eyes. You're not alone we're going to get you out of here. Russell took a long look at the world beyond the gates of the mental institution that had been his prison for six years. Life was beckoning to him. All he had to do was turn his back on the universe he created. Thierry Reese studied the man that filled the iris with the main view screen. He was being stalked by exhaustion, and the countenance that always projected strength now seemed diminished under the horrors of the last six days. She understood how he felt. I'm glad you can make it, she said. Captain Jean-Luc Picard feigned the semblance of a smile as he rose from his command chair. What's your status, Captain? It's bad, Captain. We're over capacity by 2,000 people, Kieran and Reese could barely hear Picard over the cacophony of voices. The space station's operation center had become a glorified tower of Babel. Every major power in two quadrants had someone at a communication station desperately trying to manage the influx of people and ships in and around the refugee center, formerly called Deep Space Nine. More than a half a million ships are filling the five light years between Bajor, DS9, and Cardassia. And more are coming in every hour. This is the only area of space anywhere not affected by the plasma storms. The scientists had no explanation for why the space around Bajor and Cardassia had become the untouched eye of the plasma storm that was spreading throughout the Alpha Quadrant. Kira could think of one of only one reason charity. Messages to the Gamma and Delta Quadrants continued to go unanswered, she said. The plasma storms were flowing through the celestial temple into the Gamma Quadrant, unchallenged by the prophets. People were rioting in the streets of Bejor. They believed that their gods had forsaken them. Kara was starting to believe they were right. The Federation used their technology and weapons to heal the scars of their occupation and defend Bejor. She prayed the Federation that she prayed Federation technology would end this nightmare. But she'd read the reports. Only the most powerful ships could maintain a warp field for a short time inside the storms. But they were also the most vulnerable. The Department of Temporal Investigations had released the Voyager's armor specifications, and Starfleet had begun refitting, but even the few ships with the shields were at risk. Communication was haphazard and trade and exploration had stopped, the Federation was unraveling. Will this work? The starship captain's eyes reflected what the entire Alpha Quadrant already knew. It has to, he said, the card out. The Enterprise's view screen switched to the sickening view of the plasma storms. It had been weeks since anyone has seen stars. As he watched the blue-white lights rush toward the wall of flame, Picard prayed they would extinguish the tribulation that had befallen upon them all. Report, Picard ordered. All Starfleet, Cleon, and Romulan ships report successful synchronization. 1,304 tri-lithium torpedoes have been launched into the plasma storm. Detonation in 12 seconds. Wharf working double duty as first officer and tactical specialist had spent many hours patrolling the plasma storms of the Badlands. He'd even been lost in them, but this was different. Planets were in flames, and the very stars themselves had been engulfed in plasma. This was evil. Jody LaForge was smiling as he read a telemetry from the torpedoes. Trans spectral sensors are online. A lot of people were saying this was the apocalypse. Just like they said during the first total eclipse or the first recorded star going nova. it didn't matter to the chief engineer if the storms were evil or an anomaly of nature. The only thing that mattered was the science. And when that much trilithium hit plasma, the storm in this sector would simply cease to exist. Shield generators are at 130% optimum capacity. Six seconds to detonation. Worf watched the torpedoes disappear into the breach of flame like Cleon warriors marching into Grethor to do battle with Feckler himself. Detonation in three seconds. Two. One. All eyes turned to the view screen, but nothing happened. Captain, I'm no longer receiving telemetry from the torpedoes. The forge sounded shaken, unsure. But the... Storm density in in this sector has increased by more than 30. Without warning, technicals of flame reached out and curled around the starship that represented the last hope for the Alpha Quadrant. Shields flickered then collapsed like cracking eggshells as superheated plasma tore through them the cold of space, shattering the hulls of the Starfleet, Cleon, and Romulan Armada. Lights went dark throughout the vessels, followed by the telltale puffs of venting atmosphere from hull breaches, and then the twisting and turning abstract specks that could only be one thing, bodies. Picard reacted immediately, deploy armor. As the steel gray skin covered the Sovereign-class starship, warp cores were breached on the crippled ships. A squadron of Romulan warbirds tried in vain to back off, but were caught in the chaos, with each explosion of energy marking extinguishment of life. A wing of Cleon battlecruisers broke, broke formation, veering off wildly to avoid the deadly debris and shockwaves. Picard realized these were no random energy surges. They were precise, malevolent, and from their pattern, the Enterprise was next. Drop shields, helm, take us on the parabolic heading towards the debris. Lock onto any life-sizing range and beam them aboard. As the Enterprise began its arc. Streams of superheated plasma tore into the mighty vessel. A growl slipped from the Cleon when the console next to him exploded. Ignoring the metal shard in his side, he wiped the pale purple blood from his station. Armor is holding, multiple signatures being beamed aboard. Dozens of tendrils concentrated on the Enterprise, their numbers increasing as the ship's defenses withstood their onslaught. Antim- antimatter leaked out of the port cell like blood from a wound, as the mighty starship moved even faster through the graveyard. Picard knew there wasn't much time left. Mr. LaForge, prepare for warp speed. LaForge didn't have time to answer Picard. Systems were failing faster than the chief engineer could reroute them. The radium girders groaned, protesting the insanity of a ship designed for space during the battle in the sea of flames. The Enterprise was in trouble. 572 life signs aboard. Wolf's voice tightened as he fought to keep his balance amidst the conflict between 24th century technology and the anger of the storm. The debris field is clear. The starship captain could feel the Predator bearing down on his ship. card to all ships, fall back to DS9. Helm, maximum warp. Kira watched the view screen go dark as the Enterprise and the few remaining ships escaped. A voice echoed throughout Deep Space Nine. "What are the three keys to enlightenment, Nereus?" Ops fell silent as all eyes turned to the top of the stairs in front of Kira's office. Dukat walked out from a pyre of flames. Kira was ready. Computer, run program. Kira Omega. The cornerstone force field surrounded Dukat, but the Cardassian stepped through it unconcerned. Am I not a merciful God? Have I not shown charity? Bajor remains untouched by my hand, a gift of my love to you. Dukat slowly descended the stairs towards Kira. Has not the mighty forces, has not the mighty Federation been humbled before my power? Does not the entire universe now know humility before the majesty of the Pah Wraiths? Two Bajoran officers fired their faces directly at Dukat. He glanced at them and they disintegrated into ash. Have I not shown you all these years your faith has been misguided in false gods? Kira could no longer hold back the tears as the demon approached her. Dukat smiled. Open yourself to me, to your destiny, Norris. Take your rightful place at my side, and we will rule the universe from our throne here on Terok North. Dukat outstretched his hand. Join me in the fire of enlightenment, Neris. Or burn with them in the fury of my power. Kira Nerisse looked at the outstretched hand and knew that the fate of Bejor and the universe rested on what she did next. April 9th, 1959. Lester Johnson was speechless. The janitor have been sneaking into Benny Russell's room for the past three years to read his stories. This was the first time one of the stories upset him. I I don't understand, Benny, Johnson said, shaking his hand. This here story, this ain't like you. The author looked at his friend. Other than Manning, Johnson was the only person he could talk to. The older man's dark skin hit his age well, but his eyes showed each and every hard lesson life had dealt him. Johnson meant well, but there was no way the man could relate to what he was going through. Lester, I'm in here because I couldn't stop writing, because I felt I had to tell these stories, but tell them to whom? You and Dr. Manning are the only people who have read my stories in years. I've been writing all this time, and for what? Benny Russell looked around the room at the boxes that bore the names of starship captains on them. Six years of dreams were in those boxes. Six years of writing about others' lives while he spent his in a psychiatric institution for nothing. Johnson understood the pain in Russell's voice. He knew what the young man had been through, being pushed down for speaking up, with the occasional beating included just because. Johnson had started a family late in life, which meant he had to work two jobs with his head down and the mouth shut. No matter what was said to him, he took it so he could put food on the table and a roof over his family. His wife never spoke about it, but he knew she could see it was more than just a hard day's work that made him so tired when he got home. He could feel it in the way she massaged his shoulders and always had dinner ready. Although he'd never said it, Johnson was proud of Russell. It was like something inside the young man had never learned to keep his head down and mouth shut. Through it all, Russell just just kept writing and fighting for his release. On visiting day, his friend seemed almost free, rejuvenated every time that Cassie walked through the door. But now she was gone, taking his smiles with him. Johnson was no doctor, but he knew that would be enough to break anyone. As the janitor stared at the pages filled with pain and anger, he knew he needed to reach out to his friend, help him, but he didn't know how. He wasn't like Russell. He didn't have the words. Hell, he never even finished high school, but maybe there was something he could say to the young man. I never told you this, Johnson said, but I've been telling my kids your stories. He thought about his two boys and precious girl, wide eyed and taking in every word that came out of his mouth and smiled. Man, you should see their faces when I tell them about starships and all them worlds. They raise their hands, asking questions like they in school. I'm telling you, they can't get enough. They know the names and places better than me. Pride in Russell and his children washed over Johnson as he continued. But it's more than that. When I talk about your Captain Sisko and his son or Geordi or that lieutenant or her, they see themselves. Your stories tell them that they can be somebody. Russell stared at Johnson in disbelief. Could this be true? The to always looked forward to every twist and turn in the stories that filled the boxes around them. Like Russell, they too were imprisoned. But Johnson had freed them. Taking them out into the world, Russell yearned to rejoin. His friend had breathed life into them through his children. The story now lived within them. Johnson interrupted his reflective moment as he returned the handwritten pages. Son, you don't get what's going on out there. Russell could feel the pain and anguish in his friend's voice. You got people fighting and being beaten, dying for the right to be human. Churches being burned, children, children are being murdered. Children are older than mine. Johnson tapped on the pages with his thick fingers, and here you is writing about a future where black, white, red, yellow—it don't matter. We're just people. My babies now dream of a time when the color of a man's skin don't mean he's less than anyone. This is Star Trek that you're writing. Ain't no science fiction, son. What you're writing is hope. Johnson's voice broke. you can't destroy that. What do you mean you're changing the ending? Russell heard the frustration in Dr Manning's voice. He leaned forward in the warm in the worn leather chair across from her. Her office always relaxed him. Here, he felt as if he could talk to her without the institution's eyes upon him. It was crucial to him that she understood his decision. You helped me see that focusing solely on my stories was a mistake. I'm not retreating into them again. Russell stared deeply into the doctor's eyes, hoping she could feel what he dare not say until he was free of this place. I want to need to get out of here and start living. For the first time ever, Naya Manning broke eye contact with Russell as she spoke in a tone filled with an emotion he felt from her, but never heard in her voice before. If that's true, Benny, then please. Explain to me why you're doing this now when we're so close. Russell exhaled and in doing so, realized he would finally let go of a burden he'd been carrying for far too long. Life is about joy and pain, happiness and despair. Taking all my anguish about Cassie, leaving about this place, and pouring it into epilogue won't ever truly set me free, but accepting it, learning from it, moving beyond it will. He smiled, more to himself than his doctor. My stories have always been about overcoming the darkness in the world, around us and in ourselves. I don't have to destroy that message so that I can live. Russell thought about the possibility of one day getting his stories published. When that day came, he wanted it all to be for something. I'm not sure how I'm going to end the epilogue, but I refuse to live any longer in darkness and I won't leave those characters like that either. For a long time, doctor and patient sat in silence. Manning studied her patient for what felt like an eternity before she finally spoke. Perhaps your characters don't need you anymore. Perhaps you've outlived your usefulness. Excuse me? Of all the things Russell expected to hear, this certainly wasn't on the list. I don't understand. What are you talking about? The doctor sighed and spoke as if to a child. Try to follow along. When you wrote Tears of the Prophets, the paw race possessed the orbs of time and wisdom among others. Did you ever stop to think what they did with that access? Russell shifted uncomfortably. Was she still trying to change his mind? He found himself trying to understand and answer the question at the same time. What what they did? I, they're characters. I, I don't know. It served the story. It moved it forward. Dr. Manning smirked as she removed her glasses. Let me tell you the story, Benny. She stood, turning her back to her patient as she moved toward the gated window in her office. You'll like it. It's a story about the power of the written word. A species that existed outside of space and time discovered that members of their kind had influence over their future through their writings. What they wrote became so. The afternoon sun delivered an uncommon April heat despite the ceiling fan that struggled in Manning's office. Manning stood in front of the window as she spoke allowing the sun to bathe her in its warmth. These few strove for peace and harmony, but others feared this problem. They were hunted almost to extinction. Manning noticed a group of ants moving to and fro along the windowsill with purpose, yet oblivious to the larger world in which they existed. The few survivors saved themselves By escaping to the one place their enemies could not follow, she said, not taking her eyes from the ants. They fled into their own written word. They wrote themselves into a new plane of existence where space and time existed in a multiverse of universes. The doctor turned and smiled at Russell, but he noted that the smile didn't quite reach her eyes. He shook his head in disbelief. I must be dreaming. Dr. Manning laughed. You are more right than you know. The dreamers dreamt and it became so. Slowly, almost seductively, the doctor walked along the wall where her degrees hung, admiring each. But once in this new universe, they forgot who and what they were. The creators lost themselves in their creation. They went on to fall in love, raise families, start and end wars. But what endured with all of them was their passion to write. So they continued to imagine and to write. And of course, because they wrote it, it became so. Dr. Manning stopped at the globe on her desk across from Russell, offhandedly spitting the blue sphere before speaking once again. Eventually, their writings became history, and from history stemmed religion, and from religion, fiction. Manning moved to lean on the front desk, Manning moved to lean on the front of the desk, shifting towards Russell, moving into his personal space. Now, of course, they're long gone, having forgotten their own immortality. But every so often in this universe, a member of their lineage becomes a writer and dreams. And because he writes it, it becomes so. Russell didn't understand why his doctor, his friend was doing this to him. This wasn't a dream it was a nightmare. What what are you saying? Manning snapped back. You're a scribe, aren't you? You told me often enough how alive these characters feel to you. Russell shook his head in denial. He never told anyone about his experience in the ambulance with the priest. He'd almost convinced himself it never happened until now. Naya, um Dr. Manning, I only said that because it's all so vivid to me." But as passionate as I've been about my stories, I know that they're fiction. The Pa Raves aren't real. He shrugged. They're just characters. Actually, we prefer coastal motion. Doctor Manning smiled—the smile Russell had seen a thousand times before, the smile she had rehearsed so well. Pa Rave sounds so evil. The author could feel the walls of reality crumbling around him. This, this, this is this is impossible. What you're saying is insane. The doctor returned behind her desk, no longer concealing the contempt in her voice. How pathetic! Prometheus's small mind can't accept the scope of his gift. Gift. She pushed a hidden button under her desk. We should actually thank you, because of you, we became aware of the true order of things. Because of you, we were able to travel to this time and possess Dr. Manning. Because of you, the future is now ours. Russell struggled to hold on to some remnant of sanity. But I've written about the past and the future, how, ignoring the obtuse perspective of the question, the power rafe allowed her hate to flow. You dare create gods and then imprison us? Now we return the gesture. On cue, orderlies, brandishing nightsticks, rushed into the office. Dr. Manning performed masterfully, tears streaming down her cheek. Put him back into isolation. Take away anything he can use to write with. There's nothing more I can do for him. She wept. He's insane. Nurse Richard smiled while massaging his knuckles. They ached, but damn, if it didn't feel good to get reacquainted with Russell's face, that bitch upstairs done cut you loose now, boy. You back where you belong. Richard smiled as he thrust the knife stick back into the leather holster on his belt. He wished it would have he wished he would have gotten the idea to smash the boy's face against the men's room room mirrors when he started instead of at the end. Didn't matter none now. The Negro janitor would be blamed for the bloodied and broken mirrors and would come out of that coon's pay. What's the matter, boy? Russell's silence bothered Richards. Even after breaking both of his hands, the boy barely cried out, I thought you were a writer. Where are all them fancy words now? Russell looked like he was someplace far away. He'd have to work on that. You know, boy, I can think of a word to describe you and it sure as hell ain't writer. Welcome back to Isolation Ward 4. The hall echoed with Richard's, with Richard's laughter as he locked the padded cell. Benny Russell stared at his hands, hands that had caressed Cassie's beautiful face, that were the instruments of his imagination, that had created worlds far beyond the stars, yet so much had slipped through them. Could it really be true? Could what he created, those people and places truly exist in the future? If they did, then he had condemned them, condemned everything to an existence of eternal damnation. A dim ray of light reflected from the shards embedded in his broken hands. He couldn't let anything else slip through his fingers. Hope was still in his hands. Slowly, painfully, he realized what he had to do. The flames rushed across the pages like a beast starved for the words that would feed its madness. The par wraith watched in silent rapture as the boxes that contained the future relented against the onslaught of heat and dissipated into ash. The gesture had no impact upon the already written history, but it was a powerful precursor. Soon, in the 24th century, the same would be said for every planet every ship and every soul in the universe, consumed in the flames of the Coast of Mojan for all eternity. The Rafe smiled and an instant later appeared inside the darkened isolation cell of her creator, her prisoner. He looked much like the way she found him all those years ago, huddled in a corner, his back to her, unaware of her presence. As she watched from the darkness, she realized that he was doing something. He was writing. Quickly, the paw Rafe raised her hand to do what she'd come for, increase the temperature in his brain, leaving him a vegetable for the remainder of his life. Suddenly, a column of energy slammed into the paw wraith, forcing her through the pads on the wall and into concrete. Get away from him. Ben Sisko looked down at his hands, unsure of what he he had done, or the nature of the cerulean energy emanating from them. Then, as if looking for answers, he walked over to the man in the corner who was running on the floor, a man he knew but had never met, Benny Russell. The Power Rave stared up from the rubble enraged. The Cisco, no matter, dreamer and dream will die at the hands of the coastal margin. The Power wave stood unleashing a firestorm around her, incinerating, consuming, and obliterating everything except for the small corner where Benjamin Sisko stood in front of the man who continued to write, oblivious to the battle that was waged around him because of him. Sisko watched the flames tear apart the room. Concrete became ash, steel liquefied, and he felt no heat heard no sound save the steady and rhythmic beating of his own heart the enraged Coast emotion was screaming at him flames shot from her hands and eyes as she attempted to destroy him he pitied her enough the emissary of the prophets raised his hand and the firestorm and pyre stilled frozen in a crownnin of his creation. Cisco walked through the suspended inferno. I finally understand what I am. I understand everything. He looked into the hate-filled eyes of the possessed woman. This isn't your fight. Cisco touched her, releasing a finite amount of anti-time and she disappeared, receding to the period before the power rafe possessed her. In her stead was a writhing form of energy. I understand now why the prophets never destroyed you. How could they destroy their children? Sisko felt its hatred and the inferno slowly recede as he absorbed the mass of energy into himself. A faint voice called to Cisco from the corner, calling his name, Ben. The Starfleet officer rushed over, rushed over. Benny Russell looked up into the face that was so like his own, the face that had lived the life he had dreamed of, a life of prosperity instead of prejudice, hope instead of hatred. I had to know for sure you exist. The future I created. It's real. Yes, it's real. Benjamin Lafayette Sisko looked down at a face so much like his own, yet unlike his, which water ravages of racism, bigotry, and segregation. It exists. Russell has so much he wanted to say, but there was no time. Instead, he held Sisko's hand and smiled as he spoke his final words. When I made you the emissary, I always thought it was a fajor, but I was wrong. Now I see who you were truly meant to be the emissary of. Gently, as if placing a baby to sleep, Ben and Sisko laid Benny Russell's head to rest. Next to the body were strewn passages. Written in the only thing the author had left to write with his own life, his own blood. The last section caught Sisko's attention. Enlightened through the timeless power that had been passed to him, Jake Sisko absentmindedly ran his fingers along the stitching of the weathered baseball as he stared at the blank page. Finally, he used the an antiquated ink pen to write the words, Past Prologue, The Dreamer and the Dream by Jake Sisko. As the light from the setting sun washed over the house that he'd built with his own hands in Kendra Parvins, Jake thought about the title and how much the words meant to the people on Deep Space Nine and in every corner of the universe. He thought about how much the words meant to his family and how he thought he'd never write again. Then the final words he had been searching for came to him. I dedicate this novel to my father, who's coming home. The figure behind Jake Sisko treaded lightly as he approached. The writer smiled to himself as he depressed the button on the ancient ink pen that bore the inscription, Incredible Tales, 740 Broadway. I can hear you, Jonathan. The seven-year-old giggled at being discovered, then rushed up alongside his big brother. Grandpa says dinner is ready, and Mr. Odo was arguing with Uncle Quark for trying to sell root beers from the fridge again. The little boy stood on his toes as he tried to look over his brother's shoulder. Mom says not to bother you when you're in here, but you've been in here forever. Is it finished yet? You promised you would read it to me first. What's it about? Jake placed the cover page with the rest of the completed manuscript and turned to look at his brother. The ancient Bajoran wound on his face that rejected dermal regeneration was barely visible now, a whisper of once, of what once was. It made him smile. It's about the future. And that is the end.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Wow.
0: <laughs> wow. wow. You did take some well deserved um sips and swigs of tea oh my god that. yes
2: <laughs> yes a few hiccups here and there but i hope you guys uh enjoyed that oh yes, yes. Emensely, like, immensely immensely that, that
0: was a long time since i read that one i forgot wow uh, yeah, that was amazing
2: i, know. I was a little yeah. surprised there <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's my second time i read it um i read it yesterday I read through yesterday and uh, it's it's interesting reading your own words and reading them out loud, you know. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, and of course, I can put the emotion into it that I feel should be, you know, at certain places. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I, it's one story that I really like. I, I don't usually say I like my own stuff, but I, I like the story. Oh. I real know, quick, I, love... I
0: just want to say thanks, Eve, for the uh, bye, thanks Eve. for bye, thanks Eve.
2: That was amazing. Yes, good thank night. you. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you.
0: No, thank you so much, Derek. That was amazing. Thank um, good you. night, everyone. Enjoy the rest yeah. of the session. Good night. Good night. Good night. Oh, that was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I love that story. That
1: it was, was real good. Like, Ripping. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It was. It, yeah. You know, thank you. And, and and also, you guys, I neglected to say at the beginning of the of this uh, time together that, you know, this story is the reason why Derek was tapped to write the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko. And that's coming out in December now. So it's available for pre-order and we will have links to that in the book club and all over our social media. Um, But I've already got mine pre-ordered. So (laughs) I can't wait. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm going to open it up to you guys um, for questions. Um, Maybe we should do it. I mean, we're normally really informal, Mm -hmm. but um, just so we're not all talking over each other, um, if that happens, like just start to use the raise your hand thing so we can call on you. But other than that, let's just open up our discussion. Um, I'll start with a really softball question to you guys. What was the biggest curveball that you got in that story to you? What was the one that hit you? Because there were several for me. Well, mine was the end. Mm -hmm. When he said the Mm -hmm. ruins on his face, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Wait a minute, I got to read this again. I think I got lost there somewhere. Mm
1: -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I just
0: loved all the twists. But it it was a perfect uh, dream and dreamer type story because you're, you're not, you're supposed to get caught off guard. And not with, know what's going on. Yeah, it
3: was so good. Yep. I was walking around the apartment listening to it. Because I can't s- sit like this for hour. <laughs> right, right. Um, so that's why I turned the video off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found myself acting out some of the things that you were saying. Which put me into the story. And when there was a twist, I thought, I, I gasped. You couldn't see me. But I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I love that. Sabrina? Uh, I think the part that really got me, and that's when I went, was when we went back to Wolf 359 and it was Mm. Cassidy and Jonathan. I was like, no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was awful.
2: I couldn't deal. I couldn't deal. (laughs) (laughs) So that rune at the end on Jonathan's Mm -hmm. face is to show that you know, because to, a lot of things that happen. This is a very meta story. So you know Ben is reading this on the wall, and as he's reading this on the wall, you can imagine that we, you know, if this were, if this were like a film or episode, we would shift from him reading to the actual shot of what's happening, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, this is to show that because Ducat was inhabiting Ben's son Jonathan, that's how he came back, was through right. Ben's son. So by having that rune on Ben uh, on Jonathan's face, it's a show that that happened and that's done, but there's still a, a wisp of that. There's still, you know, you know evil never really fully leaves us, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still, unfortunately, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's more realistic than saying, oh, everything is just tidy. Mm-hmm. You know, this kid is now scarred with this rune on his face. He's still him. He's still Jonathan. But he has this thing that happened to him, you know. Maybe. Maybe. Um, and he had the cot inside him, which no seven-year-old should have, right? Mm, so, never. <laughs> <laughs> Who like wants never. to have the cotton inside? inside. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but that's why I did that to show, you know, and 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 um there was also there was a word limit on this oh, when writing it. So having Jonathan come into the room and he's talking about Odo, he's talking about his mom, shows that they're all back. Mm-hmm. Right. They all made it. They all made it back, you know, that that um, Benny Russell didn't leave those characters in that miserable place. You know, he wrote them all back. Mm-hmm. He fixed everything. He fixed you know, them. yeah. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Midway through, I thought it was very paradoxical. And I like that. That you're, you're, that species that is writing their own future. Um, and I was, when you said that, I was super excited about the end. Hmm. <laughs> like whatever's gonna happen between when I was like, oh yeah, and then the end, I was like, oh, I can't wait just to hear the how this right plays out.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It, what it got me excited for this story uh, when I wrote it, it was two things. One, I figured it was a pretty bold idea. And two, is that a janitor saves the 24th century. Yeah, yeah right. I, I love that. that. Right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise, it was all going to hell, you know? A Black <laughs> yes. janitor with no high school education is mm-hmm. the guy that saves the 24th century. Right. You know? And and that could be looked over. But if you read it, that's the guy, you know, it's that janitor that convinces Benny. What are mm-hmm. you doing, man? You know, right. and and I know people like that. You know, I, I knew growing up people like that, that that because they didn't go to school or because they didn't do this or that, they didn't do that, you know, society would say one thing about them. But these are some of the most wisest people. And, you know, they're people, you know. People, people are people, and I think sometimes society will say one thing, or you didn't, you don't have a letters behind your name, or something yep. that we don't have to, we shouldn't look at you a certain way. And I was like, all right, if that's what society says, I'm going to make the guy that saves everybody is the guy that nobody would look twice at walking down the street, mm-hmm. you know. And that's the one. So that's that's that that was when I got to that scene. That was the scene for me that I was like, oh, <laughs> this is the scene, right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> So so one of the
3: things I really loved uh, listening to this, um, and now you mentioned that you had a word limit, was how much of the five-year backstory you managed to slip in using descriptive sentences and paragraphs, I mean, you know, phrases, not even paragraphs, like just one sentence, and you're telling us, you know, what happened to Odo, or what happened to O'Brien, or what happened, and I I love the way you did that with your real economy, you just got it in there, like, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you got to be quick. You got to be quick. You know, it's a, it's a it's it's an economy of words, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And no, uh, no. Uh, I think it was um, 10,000 words mm-hmm. around there uh, between 7,500 and 10,000 words um, was the limit. And uh, I was like, OK, Cause originally I wrote it for 7,500 and it fit that. And then when I found out it was ten thousand, I was like, "All right." So then I added some extra scenes, mm-hmm. like the scene when they're watching him um, in the rec room, and he's and he's uh, and he's um, uh, Doctor Wyckoff and Doctor Manning are talking about him. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I added that when I re- when I realized that it was ten thousand. And then the scene when they're outside in the park, I thought that was a great scene that I added because you could now go back and reread that scene and you can see from dr manning's perspective as a pa wraith she's got a whole different you can mm-hmm. read it now knowing she's a pa wraith and it's a whole different attitude you know yeah. right yeah right. The first read is a doctor trying to help this guy maybe there might be something romantic going on right mm-hmm. but then the second read oh man she no yeah. you know? <laughs> And so I n- I realized I needed something to be a little bit more intimate with them mm-hmm. and getting him outside would take him a little bit closer to the real world and make this all the more real for him and for us, you know? Yeah. 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 I loved that scene
0: because of that, because you really, uh, it really underscored how much of a struggle the choice was for him, right. you know? Um you know, it made it really brought that home. You know, because he's like, oh, he could touch. He's so close to he's that. So right, right, right. He's right, so right. close to that freedom.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I've been, I have an artificial hip, so I've been in the hospital for extended periods of time, and I know what it's like to be in a place where not, you know, not like that, but to be, you know, just in the hospital for a long time. When you, mm-hmm. when you go outside, you're like, oh, I'm outside, you know. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> I can only imagine six years in the place, you know, in any place, you know, and that's that's not easy on your psyche, and then you know, Cassie leaving him and all that, and then having people prey on that while you're in there, you know, is mm-hmm. it's really bad. So mm-hmm. that's what I kind of wanted to try and put all, all you know in there. And this is the guy that's writing our future. Mm-hmm. So I love it.
3: Thank you for the I appreciate that.
2: But did oh, you like that? God, that yeah. Was, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, loved I enjoyed it. reading Duk- I didn't realize how much I enjoyed reading the it, so- <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> oh, he's, yes. he's just so bad, right? He's evil.
3: It's like, like you can hear, <laughs> I can hear the voices yes. too. I yeah. love yep. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it was like JR, it was like playing in my
0: my,
3: my vision. <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah. Right,
1: right. Oh, There
0: he is.
2: Right. Yeah. Eyes, yeah. Of, eyes of flame. I got, yep. it. got yeah. it. Yeah, he's just, you know. Cause if you, bring, if you bring you bring Ducat back, you got to bring Ducat back, you know. Right. Yeah. right. You, know, you can And yeah. always
1: Mac and Kira.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> right, and he still. has this thing <laughs> with Kira that's just creepy. Uh, just, just creepy, you know. Oh. So, yeah, you yeah. know, right.
0: Karen, <laughs> yeah. Karen, what were you about to say? I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, throughout the story, I mean, it, it brought me back to all those characters. Like I could see them as if you know I was standing there. You know, watching them and it, it just everyone's personality came back. And especially yeah. as you said with DuCant. And I was like, oh he this, you know what? This
1: month. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and yeah, your your his his dialogue was mm-hmm. spot oh. on. Yeah. And it's like, oh God. And I, and I all through the time kept
0: thinking, oh, I can't go wait to go back and rewatch DS9. Yeah, yeah. He, he, Sorry, yeah.
2: go ahead. He's a joy to write for. I mean, he's a joy. You know, he's just a joy, um, to write for because this guy's just full of himself. You know, oh. um, he's nuts. Um, <laughs> other than like uh, Khan, I think he's the best Star Trek villain. Yeah, is mm-hmm. yeah. you know, to So, yeah.
0: Did oh. anybody else watch um, Far Beyond the Stars today in preparation for this? <laughs> Okay, I was no, the only one. I okay. <laughs> I needed to get in the mood. I, I was like, I need to watch it again. I, do
3: <laughs> I don't think Pluto's up to that one yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and you're right. Um, um I've I've told this story a couple of times, but as it goes, uh, there was some podcast that was talking about the autobiographies of the of all the captains, and they mentioned that there hadn't been a Cisco autobiography yet and so like um th- on twitter some people said well hey um this guy attico wrote this story and he should you know he'd be great for the cisco autobiography and that got some traction um i remember one day i i i came on to uh the platform formerly known as twitter mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> and there was like a couple hundred like um um, notifications of my name. I'm like, what the heck is going on? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and people were talking about, oh, you know, that I would be mm-hmm. good for for this. And so, about a year after that, maybe a little bit more than a year, um, I got uh, George Sanderson, the editor, um, um uh, managing editor at Titan, reached out to me and. They had heard that. They read the Cisco story, the uh Dream in a Dream, mm-hmm. the story, and they liked it. You know? Yep. And so they felt I would be a good match for the autobiography. Of
1: course. Cannot did. Wait. Oh, right. What of course.
2: <laughs> Who else?
1: Absolutely. Right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I
0: can't wait. That I think like. That's probably like my third time going through that story and it gets better each time.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it just gets better each time. I love it so much. I know y'all got some more questions or comments out there. So come on now, stop being shy. This is not a shy group. <laughs> y'all being really shy today. I'm start calling on you. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. You, I know That's y'all got, uh, uh-huh, I know you got some opinions. Come on, Kaylia. Come on, Stephanie. Come on, Tanya. Come on, Rhonda.
2: That is funny. (laughs) She called name (laughs) out.
0: Okay, I'll I'll bite. I'll (laughs) bite.
4: So (laughs) I I just loved it. I just loved it, and just everything about it I loved. But there was like this one moment that really like struck. There there were a couple of things that really kind of struck me, Um, and it was sort of that. Now I'm a psychologist. I'll give that one away, Um, and I am also a writer. And I was sitting there going, okay, so why would they be so intent on making him write the story in a certain way? And why would they keep him locked up to keep him from writing? Because, I mean, I've been working on my novel for, I'm not even going to tell you how many years and nobody's read it. And, you know, I'm thinking, I guess I'd better be checking myself in now. You know, <laughs> And I just loved where it ended up going. You know, I figured there has to be okay. So, so you know, Derek, I I just was thinking like you can't possibly be going back to that simplistic a, mental, a view of mental health because right, you can see right. this sometimes, like in pulp science fiction, they'll do this thing where you know it it right, you know it was like something out of Astounding Stories or something. You know, and it was so perfect when it got tipped on its end and mm-hmm. and. And I think I I just have this incredible image of of Benny in the corner writing with the writing using the glass with the blood dripping down, writing Mm -hmm. the story. And it just, I mean, this was just so moving. And then at the very end, when it's Jake, I mean, I I teared up.
2: Thank you. Me too. That was so, so good, Derek. I loved it. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I I don't like um tropes and you know i mean we we watch them all the time in movies and tv shows you know and and, i mean some of them you're like okay but it's like oh Mm -hmm. why did they do that and so i figured um the job of a writer at least in my opinion is to be a lot like a magician you know where i'll keep showing you something but i'm doing something else you know um and so if i'm gonna show you this relationship that you're very familiar with because you've seen it a million times between a psychiatrist and a patient that I better damn well be sure i be doing something else. Right. You know? So, and, and, and then that other thing I'm doing better be something that makes sense to you because um, I also have this thing about, I, I believe when you, when I write and when a, when a writer writes, you make a contract with your audience,
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and you're saying, Hey, go on this journey with me. I got you. You know, you may not get everything I'm doing. You may not get everything I'm saying, but I got you. You're gonna be surprised, or you're gonna enjoy this journey. I got you, and so I try and keep that in mind because I don't want anyone to be like you know bored or or th- throw you know throw it away or flush it down the toilet. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. You
4: you had us. You had us, and you had. I agree with you. That's exactly the contract,
0: and we were in good hands. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Tanya, I saw you. I saw you on mute. I saw you on mute, Tanya. Did you have something?
1: I mean, I just want to say I, I was kind of blown away by how you mapped it out. I don't know how you decide, like, what part is this flashback and like with all these alternate
0: narratives going on at the same time. I just think it was like a superbly executed like play or symphony of how you just like wove the story that way. Cause sometimes you could get totally lost. And I, I just thought that was, that was great. That's all I have to say. Cause I am not as deeply meshed as you guys are in all the <laughs> tiny details, but I mean, I know everything. I know all the story. I'm not like really out of it, but
2: yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Tanya, um, I actually had never written a story like that before, and anytime I write something, um, m- my personal rule is: if I'm writing something, there has to be a challenge in it uh, for me as a writer. Otherwise, I feel like I feel like I have to be challenged. I have to be. There has to be something for me to 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 reach for. That's a little scary, right? You know, because then you push yourself. You know, and I don't ever want to keep doing like the same thing. And I had never written um, until that time, a story within a story um, Mm. because my fear was that would be, even if I could figure it out, it would be incredibly confusing to the reader, right? Because I'm going back and forth and then, you know, the narrative starts in the 24th century, flips to, the 20th century, and it keeps going back and forth, you know, and by the end, I do end up back in the 24th and the end of the story, but it, it can be very confusing. I was like, Well, how am I going to do this? And um, I just tried reading other books and I tried, I couldn't find anything. And then one day I was like, Well, you just have to write them, you have to map it all out, outline it all. And it's basically it's two stories, and you have to figure out where they interlock, where they overlap, you know, and and the key for me, for some reason, the key for me was, was the, the dates, because the dates break the story for the for the reader, it lets you know, you know, because we're already in the 24th century, and then the dates let you know, okay, I'm back in the 50s, you know, and that kind of puts you back in the 50s, and at least for me in my head, that, that worked. Um. And once I got that, and it may may sound simple now, but at the time it wasn't, you know, and it, it just, uh, but once I got it, once I wrote the first one, um, and that first line, you know, Dr. Manning looked up from the pages. Once I got that, I was like, oh, this is how you do it. She's looking up from the pages of what we just read. And once I got that, it just, something just clicked in my head and, um, it it became really easy to, to write after that. And I wrote the whole thing, like, a I think in like less than a week, like a few days. Yeah. Wow.
0: That's amazing. I see Rhonda put her hand up and she's driving. So Rhonda, please don't crash. <laughs> oh,
1: I'm fine. Can you guys hear me?
0: Yeah, yes, we sir. can hear you just oh, fine. Okay.
1: That's great. Um, the thing that I, that one of the, Several things that stuck out to me was the conversation that the janitor had with Benny Russell. It reminded me, it made me think of the conversation, the story that Michelle Nichols discusses um, that she had with Dr. King when she thought about walking away. And it made me think, oh, I wonder if he's, if if somehow he's drawing on her story to write that scene. Because he's, I mean, this janitor's saying, no, you can't stop because it's having an impact. And it's just the way. Martin Luther King was always saying your your presence is having an impact. People are watching you. They're watching us in the future. It makes me also think of Whoopi Goldberg's story that when she saw Michelle Nichols or Lieutenant O'Hara, she calls her family. There's this black woman on television and she's not a And I just wanted to know to what extent that it did that fit into your creative process? And um, I did like how in your story that Apparently, the janitor's children seize a horror and seize themselves into that future, and I thought it was a nice way to connect that idea or to connect the story. I don't know if that figured into your thought process or not, but that is um what came to mind for me
2: uh, uh thank you Rhonda uh, um for that um consciously no um con- consciously uh. There was a, a a older gentleman in my life when I was a kid named Lester uh, Johnson, um, who would talk to me about writing, you know, and and so that's where that came from. And this was when I was like a little little kid, um, and he would talk to me about like you know not necessarily about writing, but the the importance of doing what you love, and and over the importance of that over um, there's a difference between um, living to work and working to live, you know? And, and so he would talk to me about that. And so, um, when I write, I just try and put a little of myself and what I've learned, um, in my life in what I write. And so that's where Lester Johnson came from, but I wouldn't, and now that you say it, I'm like, wow, I, I bet you subconsciously it may, that may be in there a little as well, um, I, I was definitely thinking about the fact that it was the 50s and I was thinking that that um, uh, Benny was, you know, he he was kind of cut off from the world. So he didn't know about a lot of things that was happening, you know, and him being a writer, you have to be plugged in and he wasn't. So he was just plugged into his imagination. So he was kind mm-hmm. of like cut off. And, and you know, here, here Lester is talking to him about, you know, churches are being bombed and we, we just came from there. Just a few days ago had the anniversary of those, those girls being um, killed in the, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, that's what was important. And I, and by re- bringing kids into the story, kids automatically relate to, to the reader, the future because what they mm-hmm. always are, you know, and I'm writing when I write, I want to write something that anyone can pick up and relate to. And so by this man who has no education, you know, he's like, I don't have an education. I, I don't know all these fancy words. I'm not a writer, but I, I can tell stories. I can, I can read what you're telling and then I can tell that to my kids. And then they take that and then that makes them feel good. And so that's how we as humans first told stories from, from etchings on caves, you know, before we started to uh to create hierarchies and, and colleges and all that. We just told stories, you know? And there's something lost, and I think, in that. And all Lester is doing is telling stories, and by doing that, he's giving his kids inspiration and hope. And so I think that's something that we can all get our heads around, and I wanted to, like, remind Benny of that, you know? that But mm-hmm. Benny is losing sight of a lot of things by being in there so long, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, what, that's what Lester's doing. Is like, hey, man, you know, you don't lose sight. You know, you, you're onto something, you know, you, you need to still hold on to that hope. Don't lose sight. So, but thank you right. for that. Thank you.
0: I think that the, um, this story in particular is so powerful because of that, right? Because, um, we always talk about it on the show, you know, when it's a common con it's a common, um, topic of discussion amongst blurbs, right? is that if we don't write ourselves into the future, uh, we we might not exist in the future, right? Because other people are certainly not writing us into the future, or even if they're attempting to do it, that's not from our perspective, you know? I mean, there's some great authors out there who are really inclusive and dynamic in their characterizations and their characters that they use. But, you know, I can tell it's not a black woman writing a black woman, you right. know, or I could tell it's not a black man, you know, there's a cultural perspective that's, that's lacking, you know, um, right. it tends to be sort of the utopianized, you know, Roddenberry version of like, we're beyond that. You right. know, uh, right. a lot of times, but, and that's why I think that this, story is so important, but can you give people a little bit of a sense of when you wrote it, what type of space you were in, what was going, some context about what was, if you want to share that, like about what was going on in the world at that time, because
2: I really think that that's pretty interesting too. Um, Well, I, I had had this story on my mind for a long time and I had the idea of it on my mind before 2005. Uh, And the reason 2005 was, and and thank you very much, um, uh, because that's a really great question. And in 2005, I wrote Alpha and Omega, which was a Star Trek Strange New World short story that dealt with um, um, Next Gen and Voyager, basically. Um, But I kind of had the idea of this story uh, in my head before that. And I was like, oh, you know, a story within the story. I don't know if I'm good enough to write that. I just didn't know if I was good enough to write that. And at that time, and these are conversations that I'd be really honest. I have, you know, I think I think if you're honest as a as a writer, we all have these conversations with with, with ourselves. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough to write that. It's very difficult. The easier thing for me was to write a uh, Picard, Janeway story because I know that it's easy. And even though it was a very Intricate and exciting story. It was more straightforward, more linear, than this. So when the twenty sixteen Strange New Worlds comes around, I'm like, all right, um, I can do I can do this story. And at the time, um, I hadn't really done any writing. I'd done some writing in two thousand five with the Strange New Worlds. I had one first place in that. I had done a few short stories, but I haven't. I had I didn't know a lot about the business of writing, so I hadn't really done a lot of work between 2005 and 2016. And as a writer, I was like, well, I don't really have a lot of work. I I don't think I had three professional pieces under me at the time. And I you know, the I was working in a place that was a little bit of a toxic environment, I can say, that's fair to say, and I had I had just been uh laid off from it. And uh I was like, you know what? Let's put all that. Because this is here's the thing I think when you're a writer and you're writing, sometimes it's inappropriate to put how you're feeling in a story. And sometimes it's appropriate. And as a writer, you need to know which is which. And I was like, well, Benny's in a place where what I'm feeling right now, it's very (laughs) appropriate. You know, we're both writers, we both feel out of sorts, we both have some animosity, some anger, and I can just put it all into Benny. You know, and when he sees, when we all see stars, we see stars. And when Benny looked up, he didn't see them anymore. He saw the spaces between them. He saw the darkness between them. You know how hmm. how far gone you have to be when you don't see the lights, you just see the darkness. And and I was like, yeah, that's that's good, you know, because sometimes I think we, if if we're honest, I think sometimes we're all there. It doesn't mean that the world is ending, but everyone feels a certain way sometimes. Luckily as artists and writers, you get to um, exercise that by putting it into your work. And so um, I wanted to make a statement and I wrote it. And by doing that, I wrote it and sent it away and I got it off of my chest. And I never expect anything. I never like, oh, this is going to, you know, this is going to hit and this is going to do. And I I never, I never expect any of that. I just, once it's done, it's done. I've done my part. I've done the best I can. And I just let it go. I was actually, um, I actually went back to school to finish my degree. And I was actually in the lunchroom when the announcement came. (laughs) I had totally like almost forgotten, you know, I was like, oh, wow. So I, I I was in a similar place as as uh Benny, where I was just I, I wouldn't say as far, you know, down and gone, but and I also um I come from um I, I've done some acting uh early, early on um in high school and college. And so I understand about sense memory and I try and use sense memory uh when I write, and I use a lot of sense memory for the Cisco autobiography, um, because I think it's good to be able to tap into emotions that you're feeling when you're writing. You know, I think a lot of writers do that when they listen to music. What they're really doing is they're tapping, they're using the music to make them feel something. And and I do that, but I think I was I was trying to um, tap into an emotion, you know? hmm You know? And um, I felt good with the fact that I put him in a dark place and I got him out of a dark place. You know, I think that was very very um a very powerful thing um because we all go there but the thing is that is is like he says, you know, I went there but that's not where I'm staying. Mm-hmm. That's what he tells her on his own, you know? He's like, you know, he, he when he when he goes to her in her office it's not because he learns he has this ability to write and about the future. He just spoke to the janitor with his friend. And he's like, yeah, I can't do that to these characters. I'm better than that. You know, I feel better than that. And he got himself out of that depression or out of that. But even though he's still committed, he got himself out of that. And I think that was, that's the statement. That's the the thing that I, I hope people come, come away from seeing, you know, that he got himself out of that. hmm Yeah,
0: that's so beautiful. That was really so powerful because it a really, it's dark, it's heavy. And, you know, as we're reading it, you know, I was thinking about like, you know, how unused to this situation I am, like with my favorite characters, you know, Um, with my favorite franchise, like I'm not used to it being so bleak. Like we know, you know but this is typical of ds9 anyway like you 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 couldn't quite be sure that you were going to come out unscathed you know right. but you knew that like at the end of the day because we know what type of show this is that it's right. going to it's all something's going to be redeemed right right but and as i was reading this story the whole time i was like oh man like this is really the end like the end the end like ben- benny's really going to end them you know i mean right. it really took me down like it. Uh, and so, which made the payoff even sweeter, you know, at the end. And and the fact that, like you said, like he does climb out of that, you know, he climbs out of it, he claws right. out of it, you know, right. and that that's so real too, that we have to work to get out of these spaces. You know, they don't just magically get better. We have to make some type of action of actionable change, right? Like one little step to make that difference, you know, to start doing the, to start the change. So it's a really powerful message to me.
2: That's exactly right. You know, and, and, you know, just having that, that one friend, you know, on that one person you could talk to, you know, for some people is clergy. For some people, you know, it is a therapist. Uh, you know, not a not a par rape therapist, but a real therapist. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, it it depends. Some, you know, some people, it's their teacher in their school or, you know, um a parent, or I I always say, you know, we we have two families. We have the one we're born into and the ones that we we choose, you know. Um, luckily Benny had had Lester, you know. Um mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just reminding him of what was, what was real and what was real for him, you know? And, and that brought him out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah. I feel like the the muse can be anyone.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And exactly. um,
3: mm-hmm. with uh, some of the black hero stuff that I was doing, the thesis is uh, how storytelling affects culture and society. And so when you have that janitor talking about storytelling, having an effect, um, that also made me think about the Nichelle and MLK story. Uh right. and I was thinking, oh, that guy's important. You know, this the person that gets to roam the building freely. Right. No one
2: really mm. pays attention to. Right. Right. I like that guy's important. He's right. He's important, but so, he's yeah. right. He's invisible. Right. He's he's the invisible man, which is another thing I'm saying, you know, he's the invisible man yeah more ways than one right
3: and to me it was saying like you know you you dig your way out you and benny wrote your way out Mm -hmm. and that takes a lot of work um and you have to have something that flips the switch like oh let me start doing this and i also with stephanie uh I had an ocular malfunction as well. My eyes started to leak a little bit <laughs> when it was Jake. And so when we watched all of the series, we watched all of the series multiple times, knowing that Jake is a writer and he's writing this. Right. I'm like, I, I was like, oh, my eyeballs, what's going on? <laughs> That was good.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's always been my, you know, I, these characters are some incredible characters, you know, and, um, I, I always say that, uh, I've come to believe that Star Trek, there's four foundations of, of Star Trek, which I believe is science, exploration, friendship, and hope, you know, and Every Star Trek episode, every Star Trek film, every Star Trek novel, you look uh, and those four elements are, are there in them, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's I think that's why Star Trek is 57 years plus, you know, not for the ships and the effects. It's because of those four elements, you know, and um D Space Nine has that. And, and I would say if if anything, D Space Nine has a fifth, which is family. Mm-hmm. You know? And so knowing that, I I I and knowing understanding, I I I didn't know what was coming down the pipe for me with this autobiography or anything. I was like, if I, I'm so lucky to get even that Cisco story in. So I was like, I I, I want to bring Ben back. You know, mm-hmm. I want to bring him back home and I, I and I want what I want to happen for, for Jake to happen. And so that's what I wrote, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and so hopefully people could uh, can enjoy that, you know. Um, oh, oh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's one of my favorite. Any more? Um, anybody else got any more thoughts? Go ahead, Yvette. Oh, well, I want to know how much you could tell us about uh, the upcoming book.
2: Uh, that's a great question. I can say, uh, uh, one of the, in, in one of the conversations with my, um, editor, uh, George Sanderson, he was like, um, love what you did in the dream of the dream. Can't go that far. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, because I mean, you know, I, there are a lot of, um, wild swings in this story, you know. The universe is in, is burning. Uh, I mean, you know, the quadrants are burning. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, so, uh, my style is is in the autobiography. It's just in a very different way, which is a challenge to me, you know. Um, it's a story. Um, is definitely Ben Sisko in his own words. It is definitely definitely a story of family um um there are things in it that are shades of this though, you know ah. not, not direct lines or anything like that, but there are mm-hmm. echoes you know like if you you could tell it's the same writer writing the same thing, put it like that, you know um mm-hmm. uh uh. I can say that I, I realized when I was writing it, I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! Um, this year is also the 50th uh, anniversary to hip hop," mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! I don't think Star Trek ever mentioned anything about hip hop." Well, you'll see that in this. That's awesome. Oh. Ah, you know, yeah, I, 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 I got a, I got about I got a lot of things in this book. Um, there's about 50 to 100 Easter eggs, <laughs> Star Trek related, and stuff that I think is going to surprise a lot of people wait
0: right now I really can't wait after that. I, I know right
1: <laughs>
2: yeah and I come from a lot of different angles. Nothing I come to is like straight <laughs> on, you know. Because then what's the fun in that, right? So Wait, what you, you got doing? there, JR? JR's trying JR? to put his card in the <laughs> <laughs> take, my Just
0: take, take my money. Take it.
2: Yeah, I am I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Um and the the there's there's gonna be, I can tell you that there's gonna be uh original artwork uh in the book. Oh, nice. And um the artwork is um uh um the uh the artist um is an incredible artist um um why is his why am i blank on his name uh, <laughs> russell walks russell oh, walks yeah um yeah um done done the artwork and um it's it's he's a phenomenal artist and we did some um we collaborated on some stuff and i would make some suggestions after seeing what he was doing and and he's just a phenomenal artist. Um, the artist blown me away. The art his art brought the book to life. It was already um it was it was already going a certain direction, but his his artwork really brought elements of the book to life. So I think that's going to be really enjoyable for people to look at certain pages and be like, wow. Wow. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> totally looking forward to that.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could there ever be a graphic novel
2: of this? Ooh, there could ooh. be. There could ooh. be. There, there could be. There could be. Um, the way it's written, uh, there could be a graphic novel. Um, you also don't have to be a Star Trek uh or deep space. Well, yeah, you really don't have to be a Star Trek fan to read this. You don't really have to be a deep space nine fan to read this. Um, mm-hmm. and that was intentional. Um, I, I wanted something that uh I, I know people a lot of times say. Oh, I would read it or I would get into it, but it's such a big world. I don't know where to start. I don't know where, you know. And if, let's put it like this. If you knew Star Trek when you were a kid and now you're an adult and that's all you know. Maybe you watch a few episodes, Kirk and Spock or Janeway, you know, whoever. And now you pick this up, you're good. You're good. (laughs) You'll be good because there may be a few things you don't get. But once you start reading, you're like oh, okay, I don't need that to see what's happening, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. um, and that's the kind of stories I like to tell is just stories that we could all relate to, maybe in extraordinary or or otherworldly, cir- you know, situations or circumstances. But yeah. at the core of it is people telling, you know, and families right. telling stories. So once you get into that, anyone could read this. And never, never been in, never watched Deep Space Nine. You can, you can read this and then it'll give a whole nother flavor to Deep Space Nine, you know. And of course, if you're a fan of Deep Space Nine, reading this, you're like, oh, wow, I, I can see now where things come from, so. Wow. I, I see. I can't wait for the book. I can't wait.
0: I'm so excited. I was <laughs> like, I'll wait patiently for December. <laughs>
2: December 5th. <laughs> December 5th. Yes, Mr. yes, Mr. yes. Mr. Me too. Waiting now. patiently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's
2: gonna, it's gonna be fun. I'm I'm excited to see what people think. Uh and just your takes on so many different things, you know. Um just so many different things that I wow. can't.
0: <laughs> that you can't tell us about yet that's okay because we'll make sure that we do another book club event with you once the book um yes once the book hits the shelves and then mm-hmm. we can talk all things about it which would be really awesome and Derek will be um signing oh yeah. his book in uh at Trek Long Island he'll be oh, at yeah, our absolutely. table
2: so absolutely uh you'll You'll be able to see him there also. That's right. That's next year. I'll be happy. I'll be with you guys. I'll be sitting with you guys. And I'll be be signing. that will be fun. And stay tuned.
0: uh, Stay tuned and watch closely because we're going to have a couple of more opportunities. Hopefully that you can catch Derek um, really soon coming up. So everybody, I want to say thank you all for participating today, for coming and sharing. Derek, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. You know, we love you we, love you, we oh, love you, we love you, we love you. I and, got uh, you. absolutely, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for us today, y'all. We're going to sign off and stop the recording now. And peace, love, and hair grease, folks. For all of y'all yeah. watching us, later. Later, Gators. <laughs>